0: So, uh, very pleased to welcome speakers here today, uh, the first of which is thinking about that, that Whitaker's comment about not knowing enough about what was going on behind the scenes, a man who was very much involved in the public dimension of uh, the crisis, but also uh, in that uh, element behind the scenes. Uh, Patrick Honan, uh, who is the former governor of the Central Bank of Ireland, uh, and was governor from Sep- September 2019, so came uh, in, in the throes of the crisis, if you like, to November 2015. Uh, he's currently a non-resident senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics, Honorary Professor, Honorary Professor of Economics at Trinity College Dublin, where he also taught uh, during 2007-2009. His previous experience includes 12 years on the staff at the World Bank and 7 years at the SRI. And in the 1980s, he was economic advisor to the then Taoiseach, Gareth Fitzgerald. Uh, graduate of University College Dublin, he received his PhD from the London School of Economics in 1978, and he was elected a member of the Royal Irish Academy in 2002. And I mentioned his experience uh, uh, specifically in the World Bank, but I think his experience in the Central Bank is one I'm sure he will remember uh, and one that we will also remember as as a person who contributed uh, significantly to uh, the experience that we had and hopefully, in a sense, uh, steered the ship uh, in a way that was uh, through quite quite troubled waters. And I think one of the things we ought to remember always in this case is uh, that there was... Uh, these were difficult times for many people, uh, and looking back, that we can't leave out that particular uh, sense of distance, if you like, from that, uh, and Patrick, I'm sure, uh, was very aware of that as well, so I'm very, very pleased to welcome Patrick Honan. Thank you very much.
1: August Alan Rash um, I. It's a big topic. It's a topic that there are a lot of things to be said about different aspects. I, I asked a, a good friend, going down to Galway, ten years after the crisis, what, what they what would they want to know? And uh, the friend fired back a list of questions. <clears throat> so I thought I'd take that as as the the framework. And I have 10 questions, and they're hard questions. Well, some of them are harder than others, but I think they're hard questions. And so I'm not going to give you definite answers, and I'm going to go through rather quickly, I think. But I want to give you some data. Um, This institute reflects on, on ideas, but also on data. I want to give you some, some charts and data that I find instructive on these things, they're not decisive. You might say, I oh, showed that, but you, shouldn't have, you should have showed something else. So let me show you the, um, the questions that, <coughs> that I, I, want to, um, I want to address. So did the Troika programme help or hinder Ireland? These are not in a very structured order. Was it a bad idea to join the euro in the first place? Who is more to blame, the bankers or the developers? Why are the mortgages being dealt with by vulture funds? Are the Irish banks safe, safer now? Why are Irish interest rates so high? How much of our problems were due to the ECB? Did the guarantee cause the austerity? Was the recent crisis worse than the crisis of the 1980s? So if um, some people were, were teenagers when this crisis began, well, it's their, it's their parents who were teenagers in the crisis of the 1980s, but it was a big one. <laughs> and finally, if I have time, but we have possibility for discussions later, is 2018, is the economy shaping up to a rerun of 2008, something like 2008? So hard questions, 20 minutes, I've used up two minutes already. <laughs> So the first question, did the Troika program help or hinder Ireland? Let me just check what the answer to that question is. (laughs) (laughs) The slide I want to show you, the the chart I want to show you here, the key thing in this chart, there's a vertical line. You, You all know this pattern. Massive increase in employment before the crisis. Massive fall thereafter. And the recovery and just the last data gives... The total employment right back to where it was at the peak but for the answer to this question I want to draw your attention to the little thin line that's that's sitting down there towards the bottom and that's the date of the of the Troika so yeah <clears throat> you have a, an uphill struggle to say oh the Troika caused the problem but did they help or hinder Ireland yeah I mean for me they ensured a disciplined fiscal turnaround a return to growth path it gave the government money and time to phase the austerity over a longer period than it otherwise would. So that actually the Troika didn't cause the austerity. They actually smoothed and eased the austerity. But how is that when we see Greece? I mean, the, these Troika programs are notorious. And, and look at Greece, it's a disaster. And, and that's clearly true. Our plan was better calibrated than the others. Um, this is chart which you would have to study later. The dotted line shows what the programme, at the time 2010, at the end of 2010, is what we thought would happen to the economy in terms of overall personal consumption, employment, the unemployment rate, and house prices. <coughs> the dotted line is the programme. The, the solid line is the actual. And the point about these, this chart is that they are actually quite close together Quite the, the program, ended, Whereas in Greece, massive discrepancy between what the Troika thought was going to happen or said they thought was going to happen and what actually happened. So the planning of our program was, was better. It could work and it did work. And you'll notice I don't use GDP for Ireland. Never use GDP for Ireland. But these indicators uh, give you a, a, a general picture. Of on target. But we had a very deep recession and I want to give you that comparative uh, slide which shows you country after country. Greece is over on the left-hand side. That's how far employment fell, 23% peak to trough, and 2017 is the latest year for which data, this data is available. Greece is still around the 20% fall. You can see Ireland have done it in different colours there. We had a very steep fall, but we've come back quite a a long way, even to 2017. And of course, it's it's come back to zero at this stage. So we had a very steep recession, but we had a goodish recovery relative to others. So those bits of data, I think suggest that whatever about Troika operations in other European countries, and we can look at what, what's happening in Argentina right now, it, it, it worked for us. Second question, was it a bad idea to join the euro? So that's a big question. This is the 20th anniversary of the euro, end of, end of, um, end of the year. <clears throat> the euro, and I want to show you three, three graphs for this, the euro was fighting the last war. It wasn't fighting a war of, about uh, banking problems, uh, recession. It was fighting a war about inflation. And this is Irish inflation rates during different phases of our, of our history. And You see those high inflation rates in the 1970s, early 1980s. That was the common experience around Europe. Very high inflation in the 70s and 80s. And it was at that time that the idea of linking the inflation rates to the best performer, Germany, got traction and people wanted to buy in. Let's get German rates of inflation. We're fed up with having 20, 25% inflation. But by the time the currency union started at the end of the period, uh, of, of the white period there in 1998, uh, inflation had actually been sort of vanquished. So it was fighting the last war, but it's actually a, a problem that could have reemerged. It certainly didn't. It didn't have high inflation in the euro area. I argue that obviously things have gone badly wrong in the euro area in the second 10 years of its existence. I argue all the time that it wasn't so much a bad design. You could improve the design, but bad policy implementation. Governments dropped their guard. And let me distract you away from banks for a while to show you There's Ireland's wage competitiveness. When it goes up, it's not getting better, it's getting worse. I I drew it for the uh, period up to the end of the first 10 years of the euro. And you see how Ireland's wage competitiveness relative to its main trading partners is deteriorating rather sharply in the early 2000s. Um, we focus all on the housing bank thing, which is very, very important and is the, the crucial end, but this was a problem too, and the fiscal imbalance was uh, uh, hidden. Hidden because there was lots of temporary revenue flowing into the... Uh, but what was temporary, and when they, that temporary revenue went, the imbalance in the fiscal accounts became evident. But if you look over... An, uh, 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 the century of independence, this doesn't look to the century, it goes, just goes back to 1961. It shows you Irish population growing very rapidly. And the top part of that bar, the orange part, is employment. Employment outside of agriculture, you can see also employment in agriculture. is the white, uh, the white um, slice there below that. And we can actually see that despite the crisis of the last 10 years, the period from the beginning of the euro, 2001 is the data. There's the census year. It's actually been one of the most, probably the most, undoubtedly the most successful 20 years in terms of employment growth. So let's be a little bit careful about saying, "Oh, the euro disaster. There were problems with the euro, but Ireland has, on average, had a much better performance than a lot of people think." Minute. Okay. Now here's an interesting question. Who is more to blame, the bankers or the developers? Now, aesthetically, uh, I um, don't have a great um, uh, affinity for property developers, uh, as, as um, various uh, people testifying before American um, congressional inquiries. Uh, pardon? Yeah, yeah, no, there's a whole list of people. I just want to, wanted to select between these two for the moment. Yeah, No, no, I, we only have like a number of minutes. So between the bankers and the developers. That's the race I want, the horse race I want, I want to ask. And I, I think the answer has to be the bankers more than the developers. So we can talk about other people as well, but just for the moment. You know, the developer loans that the banks made were the bulk of the losses. the the haircut that NAMA imposed on the banks because their loans weren't worth very much was about the same as the net cost to the government. So it was the developer loans. But for me, it was a kind of Ponzi scheme that the banks were, were were operating with this huge expansion of lending. The developers will take any money that's offered to them by the banks. The banks are supposed to be looking after other people's money. And here's a, from 1998 to 2008, the growth in the, in the Irish bank's balance sheets. Bank by bank, you can, you can look at them. It worked like this. A banker says, we can safely lend to developers if we finance the final borrowers. We can get demand up there if, if families are desperate to get on and up the house price ladder. Here's the house prices. And if the deposits aren't there, the, bank, the, the, uh, the, the families don't have the deposits to make the loan to, to borrow. we'll lend at 100 percent loan-to-value. And so there are two little vertical lines there, and you can see that period at which the house prices rise uh, at, at the maximum. And what's happening during that period? Are the banks taking a cautious approach and in lowering the loan-to-value ratio? They're doing exactly the opposite. They're saying, well, in order, to keep, in order to keep the demand for those residential mortgages, so that we'll get our money back from the money we lent to the developers, we lent lend to higher and higher loan to value ratios. So, there in those, those four years, in the proportion of loan to value at more than 95% is jumping from about 5, 6, 7% up to 35, 40% of the loans. So." bankers more than developers to blame. That's just my preference. Let me move on to a completely de- bring it right up to date on the question of why are the mortgages being dealt with by vulture funds? I just want to... Well, we know this this graph, the number of mortgages in arrears. Banks really only started to get to grips with this issue, really only started to try to deal with the rising amount of non-performing loans around 2012, when they were pushed and prodded into it. And they made some there was some progress. The economy improved, some progress. But really, actually, they haven't really got the situation under control at all. Why is that? Here's a picture. This is this is a picture of Bouridon's banker, and this is a nod to the Moore Institute, because the rest of the talk is more on the Whittaker Institute side. Buridan is a 14th century uh, French philosopher, and he uh, described the, the the problem of the donkey um, who didn't know he's faced. If he turned to the right, he could get water. If he turned to the left, he can get grain, he's hungry and he's thirsty, but he doesn't know which way to turn, so he starves to death. Bankers, I think, a little bit like that. They could go tough, like the American banks, just move in, repossess the properties, sell it, move on. And far too many properties were repossessed like that in the United States, and people are thrown out. Uh, Or they could say, well, let's, 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 let's give some debt relief here, because we're not gonna get the full amount back on the house loan, it's gonna be very costly for us, the houses prices have gone down, we're gonna take a, a, a big loss, and if we face up to that loss, and say, look here, we know you can't repay, and we're going to write your loan down, this kind of debt forgiveness, partial debt, no, not full, they were afraid to do that, why? They were afraid to do the first, and they were afraid to do the repossession, because of the opprobrium the public opprobrium, bad enough as it was for the banks, they just didn't want to go to be identified with uh, redcoats at the time of the land league. And anyway, none of them liked doing it. And they made lots of process mistakes, hard to get their, their repossessions through the courts. So they shied away from that. But they were also afraid of providing the, the, um, the, the relief because they feared they would get sound borrowers taking, you know, give an inch of relief that sound borrowers would take a mile of delinquency. So they were trapped in an in, in, in indecision. <laughs> and that is why they've got to the stage where they have not resolved this problem, and the new players on the bo- block, the American funds, they're not bound by either of those two problems. They don't really care about opprobrium, and they don't have another set of customers who might say, oh look, they're cutting deals, I won't pay so that that I'll get into that deal cutting business. So I think um, this is a failure of the banks to actually deal in a systematic and progressive way leaves it to other players. How am I doing for time? Not well. Are the Irish banks safer now? Safer for whom? Safer for the nation's finances, yes. Uh, They're very unlikely to make credit losses in any future downturn on that scale. That's not going to be where problems from the banks will come. Service reliability to the customer. Well, things could go wrong with banks. I think cyber risk is a a big unknown factor. Uh, They are very complex, not complex in the sense of sophisticated, but layers of history of their, their uh, uh, technology systems. And if they can be hacked, they, they might be hacked. And so cyber risk is, is not just particularly Irish banks, that's, a, that's a, a problem across the world. And then conduct. I hope they're chastened from the billion, one billion they were obliged by the central bank to pay in, in, in the tracker scandal, that was for not acting in the best interest of their customers. They're meant to act in the best interest of their customers. They thought, oh, well, the contract seems to allow us to, you know, you've got to act in the best interest. If there's ambiguity, if there's vagueness. And that's a long tradition of corporate entitlement in the Irish banking system, going back decades. I mean, remember the National Irish Bank case in the 1990s? of overcharging systematically, simply because they wanted to increase their profit to an acceptable level from the the owner. Now I'm running out of time. And I've still got five questions. Why are Irish interest rates so high? Of course they're not high by historic standards, they're lowest ever, but they're high by international standards. And I just want to show you one thing about that, and this we could spend the whole afternoon talking about uh, Irish interest rates, mortgage interest rates. And this is just an interesting vignette period, the period uh, immediately after the crisis and what it shows is that Irish banks moved to track British mortgage interest rates rather than continental ones after the crisis. They said if the British banks can get away with this these high interest rates we can do that as well. The interest rates are higher than in, in uh, most other countries in Europe. New lending is a profitable business. Only when competition comes in will those interest rates come down. How much of our problems were due, was due to the, oh sorry, did I not show you that slide? I'm sorry. That's the slide. And it shows you the British rates, they're in red of course, and the Irish rates. What happened to the Irish rates? They came down in line with all European rates, 2009, 2010. And then they saw, well, the British banks are not lowering their mortgage rates. And they brought them up and sort of converged on the British rates. What happened since 2014? The data changes slightly. You have to get a different set of data. But they have come down a bit in Ireland. They've come down more in in Britain. So there's definitely more scope for Irish interest rates to come down. And much of our problems were due to the the ECB. And um, here, you know, there's a lot of criticism that I can make of, of the ECB, but it only ends up as a sh- small part of our problems. They did not force the guarantee in 2008, but they did insist no bonds be burnt in 2010. That stage there was a five billion of bonds, unguaranteed, left in Anglo and INBS that could have been burnt. So what were they doing? Well, they were lending. The banks the money to repay the the, the uh, their creditors. This is the the borrowing of the Irish banks from the central banking system. That's the ECB and uh, ultimately soared up there. That's how the banks did manage to pay their creditors. They didn't draw on the government, fortunately, because the government would have not been able to honour its its uh, its debt and would have defaulted. On. And in the end. Not in the beginning, but in the end, the refinancing of the net debt of that was at very favorable interest rates. Let me show you that the total circle is the total banking losses, one measure of them. Who paid for them? Foreign shareholders, it's great when you get foreign banks here in and they lose money because they take the hit. So the top left-hand side is there. The subordinated debt holders, actually they wear haircut by a lot, 14 billion. The Irish shareholders, God help them, 29 billion. And the Irish government, 37 billion. So that's the net. The net cost is, is 37 billion. The point about it is that because of what the ECB has done on interest rates generally and on how the uh, f- losses of Anglo-Irish Bank and their indebtedness to the central bank system has been refinanced, The servicing cost of that debt is very small. Um, Okay, did the guarantee, this is the guarantee week, did the guarantee cause the austerity? This is a surprising chart, I think. Um, The red part is the cost of the banking, uh, paying the the banking losses, the banking creditors, the net cost there. It goes up and then it flattens out. And by 2015, indeed by today, the net is around the 40 billion mark. It'll end up around 37 billion, I reckon. But the amount of austerity needed to balance the budget is far greater than that. You hear the number 30 billion, and you say, oh, 30 billion, and the banks are 37 billion. No, the 37 billion is once for all, that's it, it's finished but the 30 billion adjustment is every year, so you have an accumulation, and that only goes to 2015. We could, if there was room on the chart, we could continue that up, more or less in the same slope, a little bit flatter, but more or less in the same slope. So the rest of the, of, of the austerity has nothing to do with the guarantee. It does have something to do with the banks, because as I said earlier on, the banks drove the bubble. The bubble lured the government into imbalancing its budget and then it had to have the austerity to return things. Was the recent crisis worse than that of the 1990s? Quick answer, it's very hard to say. Everybody said this is the worst since the foundation of the state. Probably is. There's total employment in the the solid line, There's the recent crisis. See in the earlier crisis, the dip is smaller, but it takes a long time to recover, and the, Unemployment rates, again, the recovery is faster in the more recent crisis. Personal disposable income, yeah, it's a kind of a big dip in the 1970s. So They're about the same size. I think still the latest one is probably deeper in some, in, in the, according to some criteria. That's my last graph. The last question was, is 2018, is the economy shaping up for a rerun? Short answer is sort of probably no, but there could be some risks, but I'm going to leave it at that.